I'm being told by journalists what to think. My approach was always, this is what I saw, this is what I heard, and now here it is, guys, you decide. Hi, it's Holly Ransom here. Welcome one and all to Coffee Pods, Fuel Your Difference, a podcast for the change makers and the game changers. This podcast is built around a simple hypothesis. How long does it take to learn from someone's lifetime of experience? Coffee. So in the time it takes us to share a cup of coffee with our guests or for you to enjoy one as you listen along, we're going to tap into the lifetime of experience of some truly remarkable people who've driven significant change. I'm a big believer that success leaves clues. And be it putting an audacious idea into action, shifting a team culture, or even a country's for that matter, or using their influence to drive progress, all our guests have powerful insights, pragmatic tips, and passionate calls to action that can help each of us to fuel the positive difference we're all working to create in our lives, organisations, and communities. Coffee Potters, welcome to the second instalment of our special podcast series with IWF, the International Women's Forum. Our guest this week, I don't even know how to adequately do her justice in encapsulating her. And I got to admit, I was a little bit nervous conducting this conversation because our guest is Anne Medina, an Emmy award-winning broadcast journalist. In fact, one of the world's most highly respected and renowned journalists and an expert advisor in communications and technology. She began her TV career in Chicago, becoming a network producer at NBC before moving to Canada, where she worked for the Canadian Broadcast Corporation. She then joined the journal and became its senior foreign correspondent, focusing on stories in the Middle East in particular. She was actually the Beirut Bureau's chief for CBC's The National during that really critical period in 83 and 84. She's moderated election debates. She was president of the Canadian TV and Film Academy. The list goes on and on. This is a really insightful and engaging podcast and a challenging one at times too. We're going to pick up the Me Too and Time's Up conversation. We're going to focus on the lessons learned from time on the ground in war zones covering a significant conflict. We're going to unpack the art of effective communication. We're going to talk about the importance of being open and not thinking that you know. Here's Anne. And Medina, thank you so much for joining us on Coffee Pods. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, really where I wanted to start was getting a sense of where your passion for journalism or your innate curiosity started. The curiosity was there day, you know, whenever I was walking and talking and my father was a lawyer and he was always curious and he'd poke around in different subjects. He was in litigation and traveled the world and I think that had a big influence on me. But journalism, I never really had a passion for journalism. And in some ways, I still don't. What I do have a passion for is he always had mottos. And one year, the motto was, let's be fair, let's be fair. So my brothers and I be fighting and, no, come on, kids, let's be fair, let's be fair. And that sense of balance, that sense of fairness, that sense of, well, on the one hand, well, on the other hand, and I studied philosophy. And I loved philosophy, whether it was the logic, whether you try to put yourself a distance where you're not imposing your views on whatever your conclusions are going to be, you're going to try to you know, find a way through the messy ideas that are just floating all around. So it was more finding 
what really is happening. The real motivation came when I was a graduate student. I, was, I had got my master's working on my doctorate in philosophy, and it was Chicago. There was anti-Vietnam demonstrations, civil rights demonstrations. There had been, you know, burning down neighborhoods. It was just chaos. And I was a graduate student. There were demonstrations. They took over the administration building, yada, yada, yada. And I'd watch the news. I'd say, that's not what happened. That, that, that's not what was happening. And that was the spark, if you will, that got me into reporting. I never went to journalism school. I started knocking on doors. And what I ended up doing was taking three stories. I studied one local station. And I took three stories and a paragraph of what they did and then a paragraph of how I would have done it. A paragraph, second story, they did I, six paragraphs, one page. And no training. It was just what is happening? What is real? And that started me on the whole role to reporting. You just touched on that whole piece there around what is real. I'm interested, how do you make sense of the fake news phenomena, uh, the state of public dialogue that we're in right now? Well, the fake news I'll put aside because it's, it's such an ambiguous word. Are you talking about people who intentionally put false stories? Are you talking about people who are only seeing one side? What drives me bats is I'm being told by journalists what to think. My approach was always, this is what I saw, this is what I heard, this is what I know, not just what I think or what I believe. And now here it is, guys, you decide. You, the viewer, viewers, readers, you know, listeners, they're smart. I can listen to an interview sometimes. I know the next question because I know the slant of that program or that network. And that's not exploring. That's not being curious. That's not wanting to know what's really happening. They they go into it knowing already. And I still remember when years ago, I was in China, and this was before the Tiananmen Square. And I was, I guess, the kind of journalist that I hate today. I went in and, you know, this, okay, there's some student demonstrations, and there were. And we were given a a young student to interview by the Chinese authorities, yada, yada. So we did the interview with this young woman, and, oh, she was against the demonstrations. Of course I knew she'd be against the demonstrations, and the minder was sitting right there, so of course... I knew what the story was. I knew what she was going to say. And for some reason, I said, okay, you were against the demonstrations. Tell me why you were against what they were demonstrating for. Oh, I wasn't against what they were demonstrating for. I was just against the fact they were demonstrating. Oh, you know, I was gobsmacked. And that opened up a whole crack in my mind of what the real story was. 
They were beginning to get economic freedom, and they wanted political freedom. It wasn't just the demonstrators. It was the hardcore communists also. But I would have missed that because I thought I knew. And that's what you have to, whenever you go into different countries, you find all different kinds of costumes, I call it. Some are black skin costumes. Some are bullets across their chest costumes. Sometimes they're old age costumes. What we have to do is somehow see people, you know, we're not all alike, but to see people past the costumes. Because once you see the costume, I'm seeing that little Chinese student and I know what that person thinks and how they behave and what drives them and what inspires them when I don't. So that's part of getting what's real by letting your mind be open to whatever is coming in rather than having your preconceptions. I want to go back for a moment to the start of your career. You're really the first journalist in Canada to become an icon. She's making a face for those listening who can't see my face. You're being incredibly humble because I know you certainly were. I want to know, how did your career in journalism itself kick off? How did you get your start? When I first went into it, that was probably uh, when I first was really going up the ladder. Uh, I'd been a network producer with NBC and ABC was, you know, courting me to become a correspondent. Well, they had hired six women correspondents, network correspondents out of New York in the past two years, and six had been fired. They weren't really looking at them in terms of their journalism. You know, it was just, oh, yeah, we need a woman. Whether that was the case or not, I don't know. And I turned out to be lucky and not just lucky that they kept me. Now, the reason they kept me was I used to play girls basketball. And I was really, really good at getting the ball under the basket. Now, where I screwed up a little bit was getting it into the basket. But I could weave my way through, you know, whatever. Well, this was the Watergate era, and they had scrums outside of the Attorney General John Mitchell's Fifth Avenue house, and a New York scrum is big. <laughs> lots of cameramen, lots of salmon, lots of reporters, lots of chaos. And he'd come out to get in his car, and basketball-trained Ann would wheedle her way, and what do you know, there I am right next to him asking a question. And you could only get one question in in that scrum. So I was working for ABC, but my question and answer ran on NBC and CBS. And that happened three times. And at one point, Mitchell said, Get out of the way or I'm going to slam the door on your hand, literally. So ABC loved me because of my basketball training. That was the beginning. 
I wanted to ask you about one of my favorite quotes that I found uh, during research for this podcast, uh, which related to you turning down an offer to take a sports role in the 70s. <laughs> you said, and I quote, taking the side door means losing respect as a journalist. So take your pick, star or journalist. Your line of work is notorious for people that are hunting the star side of that equation. I'd be keen for your reflection on how easy or hard was it to stay true to your own moral compass uh, through decision-making and role choices throughout your career. What's the story that you'll never, ever forget covering? Lebanon. And I say Lebanon because it isn't just Beirut. It was a specific story in a big sense that they were swept along waves where individuals had no control. And I used to talk about, I guess he was head of security or secretary of state. He wasn't secretary of state, but something like that. Robert McFarland, something like that. And he'd say, well, U.S. is going to Lebanon to help bring peace. What does that mean, bring peace? It doesn't mean all of a sudden everything is peaceful. What does it mean? So we went to two villages, Sukhagar and L.A. One was Druze, one was Christian. And the Israelis were about to withdraw, and they hated each other's guts. They were ready to go to war, to a kind of war, take no prisoners, a kind of ethnic cleansing war. It was going to be horrible. And we went to both villages. What does peace look like? Peace will look like when these two villages can live side by side. And the war did come, and it was as awful as everyone predicted, and a Canadian journalist was killed during it, and it was a bloodbath. People talk about Trump now with China and North Korea, and I doubt the Koreans are going to stop bombs and you know their nuclear tests or missile tests. But the question was always, you know, people and well, what do you think? Is there going to be peace? I said, look, whether Trump intentionally or with Europe and France and everyone's help, if they bring about a pause that de-escalates some, it's not bringing peace, but it is an important step. And we saw with Israel and the Palestinians and then with the Shia, you know, there would be pauses and sometimes a little hope for a little more peace. Not peace, but more peace or less peace. What was the most powerful thing that you learned about yourself from your time overseas working in conflict zones? Probably two things. <laughs> One, it became a, a mantra uh, it doesn't matter. Bad hair day. It doesn't matter. <laughs> and I would say, and I given speeches, and then five years later, some young woman come up to me or a guy and say, I always remember, it doesn't matter. And it really doesn't. So it crystallized what mattered. And the other thing, and I would talk to businesses in this context. And again, it's sort of on the theme of 
thinking you know, but we go off on a day in Lebanon or Uganda, actually, too. And we, today's going to be a piece of cake. We're going to be fine. <laughs> or one time in Lebanon, we got back <sighs> to the hotel after a day we thought was going to be terrible. It didn't turn out. <sighs> and the hotel literally blew up. Not the whole hotel, but there was a four-foot step in the dining room under five stories that was not there. Israel thought they had a plan, Sharon, years ago, that all the Palestinians were lobbing these rockets across the border. So they would go into Israel, they would kick the Palestinians out, and the Palestinians were able to lob the bombs because there was no strong government leader in Lebanon. So they would then kick the Palestinians out, put this guy named Bashir Jamayel in power, and everything would be much better for Israel. From Israel's point of view, it probably made sense. And they did it. They kicked Arafat and the Palestinians out. They put Bashir Jamayel in. And then about two weeks later, a bomb went off, and Bashir Jamayel was killed. And you can think you know, you can think you can control, and you got to be ready for those, it ain't going to go the way you think it's going to go. And whether you're talking about the stock market, <laughs> whether you're talking about the latest fad, whether you're talking about technology or what young people are really thinking, be ready to be surprised. It's kind of arrogance when you think you know what's going to happen. I know you've been extremely passionate about over your career is raising the profile of women in film, television and journalism. I'm interested in how you reflect on the Me Too movement. I'm torn, to be honest. In Toronto, a few, two months ago, there was a young 11-year-old girl who told of going to school and uh, an older boy chasing her. She was wearing a hijab to cut it off. And her voice was just so strong in the sense it was so small. And another friend came with her, and so the guy disappeared. And then later, two others, he came back with two others, and they ran away. And she told this story. And the Prime Minister of Canada, how can this happen in Canada? This is a disgrace. And the premier of the province. Three days later, the police make the announcement it never happened. To this day... Nobody quite knows what did happen, whether the parents wanted her to say it or whether she just made it up. But the police were adamant, saying nothing like this happened. We all believe that 11-year-old girl. And sometimes just believing somebody isn't enough to make it true. Just this week... There was a case of a prominent journalist being accused of sexual harassment 
uh, using I, I want you to sleep with me to uh, let her think that then she can come on this TV show. The television organization handled it beautifully. They brought in an independent legal investigator, and it took two months of the investigation. And today the report, or yesterday the report came out totally absolving him. There's another case in Canada where this guy, you know, we're not talking rape, we're not talking drugs, we're not talking physical violence. And two criticisms came out more later, but two criticisms, he was dropped, he is being sued for $6 million. He and his family, uh, the wife was fired, he's lost all that he achieved, which was major. No one is, and no investigation had taken place. So there has to be some process. So I worry that we're going to be bringing in a backlash. On the other hand, what the whole Me Too has done is, <laughs> boy, a lot of people are saying, I better be careful, <laughs> and they should be careful. I think there's so many gray areas. So I just think, okay, there's been a lot of really important eye-opening, but now we ought to maybe start saying, are there gray areas? Are there, are we going too far in some cases? Uh, we've got to stand back and not say, because she said it, I believe it, therefore it happened. The 11-year-old, it didn't happen. The TV guy, it didn't happen. So when it we know it didn't happen. Are their lives then so ruined that they can't get it back? That's what worries me. One of the challenges I worry about is where do we have the conversation about the gray area? We're in a 24-hour news cycle. Everything's optimized for clickbait. Uh, we're in these binary conversations. And in many ways, we've lost the art of being able to contend with that complexity. Well, forgetting even the media, just chatting with friends. I was saying something and a friend was saying, you actually said that? I, I feel the same way, but I'm scared to say anything. And what it is, forget now, as I say, the media, just among small groups of women, we're not really allowing that discussion of the gray areas. Do we, I mean, we've all been, especially people as old as me, <laughs> Uh, in those days, I mean, I was sexually harassed. Of course I was. Yeah, been sexually harassed. And we all have. Do I want to accuse a couple of the guys now and ruin their lives? No. I mean, if it was rape, if it was, you know. And what we need to do is talk more amongst ourselves as intelligent women that don't have to just knee-jerk saying, well, if she said it, I believe it, and it happened. And the guy, oh, he's a guy. He must have, and he's not only a guy, he's got some power. So it must have been, as she said. No, it may have been. See, what's 
What was my father's motto? Let's be fair. And that is where I come at this. And, you know, we're not talking male or female. It's let's be fair. And I don't think we're being fair often. I completely agree with you that I think there's some real concern around the backlash that's being generated uh, at the moment. Well, there I was moderating a panel about three weeks ago, and one of the women on the panel, an amazing woman, woman and capital F feminist. I mean, you know, she has poured more leadership and money and, you know, uh, originality and done so much for women. And I asked her in the telephone pre-interview, I said, is there any question you want me to raise? And she said, yes. On the Me Too movement, I said, thinking I knew what she was going to say, which I didn't. And she said, I said, well, why is that? She said, I think sometimes we've gone too far. And I worry about the backlash, just mm-hmm. your word. Uh, it's, it served a purpose. It should continue in some form. But, and this is just this amazing feminist <laughs> saying this. You know, we've got to be more open and talk about these things. And just because you say, let's look and explore the gray area, doesn't mean you're, you know, uh, going against womanhood or whatever. I agree with you. And uh, I like that theme. So I want to ask you, what's the question I should have asked you? Are you having fun? (laughs) Not a doubt in my mind you are. You exude fun. We were in Uganda (laughs) and it was a bad time. We were, we had been told absolutely the road wasn't mine. What period was this? This was just around Museveni when he was taking control. I forget years, 80, who knows, 84, 83. I'm terrible with years. And we're talking an old road, et cetera. And we're riding around, riding along pretty confident because we've been told, oh, that guy had a little problem there. (laughs) Ooh, that guy had a little problem over there. And then we got to the third wreck, and it was fresh. And we knew we were on a mined road, and we were past the point of no return. So we probably had about 20 more minutes of driving on this road with potholes, etc. And we're all wordless. We have problems breathing, even. And all of a sudden, Mike Sweeney, the cameraman, pipes up from the back, What a great day! (laughs) And we laughed. (laughs) All of a sudden, we got air in our lungs. Yeah, it is a great day, isn't it, Mike? You're absolutely right. (laughs) And needless to say, we made it. But, you know, it's, you gotta have some kind of humor, but, and forget even the fun part. When I look back, how many brothers I now have that I worked with, the people I met who taught me so much and 
what I always like to do sometimes is they would ask me questions. And if I'm going to ask them questions, I ought to be as open with them as they, I want them to be with me. So sometimes in India, for example, the women say, so do you have any children? And I'd say, no. Um, it just, I wanted them, but I never could have one. And they'd look at me so sadly, you know, you poor woman. So it was sort of a, but what they gave me and what I saw of people doing horrible things, but, you know, it's it's all cliche. Uh, but cliches are cliches because there's some truth in it. That, yes, I've seen some of the worst that people can do, but I've also seen some of the best. And I've laughed with people from all over the world. And I've eaten. There's one Syrian farmer sticks. We had a big sheep face. Boiled cheap. And these were poor farmers, and we were all seated. I was the only woman on the ground, and his hands are just filthy from being a farmer. And this and he puts his arm into the sheep carcass and then brings out this something dripping with grease, just dripping with grease. And he turns to me and he says, For you. And I go, for me? <laughs> and I go, okay. <laughs> now, we have a su suspicion of what I ate. <laughs> they were little, they were round. And, and people say, how'd you do that? But again, don't think you know. They were the most delicious, tender, I would do it again. You mentioned how many lessons you learned from the people that you met over the course of your career. What would you say was the most significant personal lesson? I, I think teaching me to open my eyes as much as I would think at any time I was pushing aside my biases that I was seeing people without their costumes, you know, some would always come up, no, man, you still got a little bias over here. Pay attention and get rid of it. Uh, it's, you can never rest. You can never stop saying, okay, I got this. You don't got this. You got to keep on getting it if you can. You can always do it better. And I wanted to draw on all of your experience and insight uh, as a communicator. If you're wanting to give someone advice as to how they can most effectively package an idea to engage people, what would the best advice you could give be? Telling stories. Everyone connects to stories. They don't connect in the same way to ideas. You can have all kinds of great ideas, but if, unless there's that story to flesh it out, you'll end up with a lot of Robert McFarland with theories about peace rather than, well, what does it really mean? And you only know what things mean when you put it in a, a story. And usually it's stronger if you're part of that story. I don't mean an, a me, me, me part of that story, but where it resonates with you. 
And the other thing, humor. <laughs> I mean, we all love to laugh. Let's get real. And so if in your stories there may be occasionally a chuckle or and sometimes in a smile, there'll be a, a bingo. There'll be a, a different kind of connection because all you want or all you can expect is that people go away with one thing from whatever speech you've given or whatever. And as I mentioned, a number of people came away, it doesn't matter. And part of the reason they liked that was because I also said, bad hair day doesn't matter. They connected with that. So that then sinks it in even deeper. I love that. And this has been one of the most enjoyable coffee pods I've ever recorded. Uh, you were a phenomenal storyteller and you have such deep wisdom. My final question, if you could leave our audience with one call to action, what would it be? To listen to the other side. And we're not just talking politics. We may be talking about bad relationships with a brother or a sister or a husband or a wife or a child. But to listen to ideas that you think you may disagree with. And you may end up even disagreeing with them more. But first go through really listening to them and then maybe also they'll listen to you. And thank you so much for your time. It has been my absolute privilege and pleasure to get to interview you for Coffee Pods. Thank you so much. Holly, this has been, you make it, you know, just relax. We're having a cup of coffee, right? <laughs> and we did have a cup of coffee. We found one, which <laughs> is great. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organization, or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback, shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom, leave a review for this coffee pod, or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me. Thank <laughs> you.